Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Welcome to Post Doom. Regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. In this conversation, recorded in November of 2019, I'm joined by Barbara Cecil, my co-host. And if you're not already familiar with Barbara, definitely check out my post-doom conversation with her. She's amazing. And we titled this Living in a Time of Endings. Dugald Hine is one of the co-founders of the Dark Mountain Project. Just an amazing soul. There are three short previews. Preview one. One phrase that we used in the manifesto that Paul and I wrote that was the beginning of Dark Mountain was right at the end. We said, the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop. Mm -hmm. And we talked about together looking for the hope beyond hope, the paths that lead into the unknown worlds that lie ahead. For years, I did quite often return to that, trying to play with this idea that the end of the world as we know it isn't something, you know, the world as we know it and the world are not the same thing. Right. And in, in a conversation quite early on in Dark Mountain with David Abram, um, I found myself sort of articulating this as the end of the world as we know it is also the end of a way of knowing the world. Oh, that's great. And then later I realized that you can't quite escape the sort of run for the hills connotations of the end of the world as you know it, however much you try and play with it. And that maybe another language is to talk about what it means to be living in a time of endings. Quieter way of naming this. Preview two. Here was somebody who was already you know, in the middle years of life, who was clearly an activist, who was motivated by something that went deeper and was more resilient than anger. And a lot of the activists my own age, who I had spent time around and worked with, were quite driven by anger, because you can, you know, anger can get you out of bed in the morning and you can do a lot with it when you're 25. But you do not meet many people who reach 40 and are full of life, and anger is the thing that is driving them. And so Alistair um, you know, kind of embodied for me somebody who you know, was 25, 30 years older than me and hadn't burnt out or sold out and whose activism had actually achieved real things in the world. Preview three. The trickster figure, because of their low status, because they kind of know how to treat things as a joke, can find the joke within the tragedy, can find the sort of the way to fall down and laugh at yourself rather than fall down and stand up and look very sternly at the, uh, the bit of pavement that you just tripped over um, and can, can help us move through to whatever it is that can be created under the circumstances we find ourselves in as we live through whatever kind of fall it is we're living through. Yeah. 
So for me, that's one of the stories about where, you know, why it's so fertile to hang out with artists and to bring them into the spaces that we bring together to talk about these things. The conversation begins. Well, what a delight to relate to you in a real-time, FaceTime, voice-to-voice way, because we've not met personally, and yet you are somebody who I have held in highest esteem now for about five or six years. And uh, so this is a... It's been uh, lovely to be in touch with you over that time, and nice to to meet you now. And hello, Barbara. Hello, Dougald. Well, Dougal, what I'd love to ask just at the very start, for people who don't know you, people who are watching this or listening to this, who haven't, who may not be familiar with Dark Mountain, they've not read your blog or, or your writings, and so they really don't know who you are. Help the person who doesn't know who you are sort of get you. Once upon a time, I was a radio journalist at the BBC, um, but I realized pretty quickly that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life working in newsrooms and that I wanted to find another way of telling stories and within a few years where that took me was to crossing paths with another recovering journalist Paul Kingsnorth. Both of us had been also pretty deeply involved with environmental movement in the UK where I grew up and we shared a certain set of disillusionments at that point in time, a sense that there was a gap between the public expression of a kind of can-do spirit and the conversations that people were having quietly in corners about how close to despair they were. And I think for me, there was a strong sense that that was actually quite a dangerous thing. And on the other hand, Paul and I were both writers. Uh, you know, Paul's a poet and novelist. I've worked with artists in one way or another throughout my life. And we had a sense that there was a sort of deeper cultural role in coming to terms with and working out what still makes sense in the face of what we know and what we fear about what's around and ahead of us. And out of that came this thing called the Dark Mountain Project. And for 10 years until this July, I was always at least partially responsible for that. And in that time, we produced about 15 books, festivals, gatherings, courses, uh, a lot of different manifestations of what happens when you create a space where people can come together around their, their doubts and their fears and their darknesses and their uncertainties without the pressure to um, you know, to put on a face of positivity or to move quickly to action or to answers. Um, and so I've just moved on from that this summer and um, there's lots of other things that I'm kind of working well, on. But that's been yeah, a big well, part. Well, go ahead, go ahead and share just a little bit of that. Uh, you can share more in a bit here, but uh, what, what have you done? Because those who are familiar with you are obviously gonna be curious what's been up for you since Dark Mountain. Well, I've been enjoying the freedom from responsibility and getting a lot of writing done. And part of my plan for the next few years is really um, to keep that kind of quiet space within which I can put a lot of the thinking that's come out of the, the work that I've been involved in, put it down on paper in a more substantial form than I've had time to in the last 10 years. But alongside that, 
slowly and gently, my partner Anna Bjerkman and I are in the process of starting this school called Home, which is a school that starts from the conversations that we've been bringing together for years around our kitchen table. Mm -hmm. And it's really an, an extension of that. And we call it a learning community and a gathering place for those who are drawn to the work of regrowing a living culture. You might say regrowing a living culture among the ruins. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where, where we're at at this moment in time in this corner of Sweden where I've ended up. I'm curious, how have you languaged our declining or deteriorating times? I mean, we're using post-doom in this particular conversation series. I'm just wondering how that lands for you, if at all. But how, what language do you find yourself using for yourself and others uh, for these times and what's unfolding? Mm. I think, for me, something I learned years ago from uh, an Irish thinker, Anthony McCann, the, the importance of lifting up the words and looking underneath. And he, Anthony used to say to me in our conversations, the more the words matter, the less the words matter. That is, the more we get into the type of conversation where we get very fixated on you know, the particular words, the more likely it is that there is something going on here that makes the conversation actually uh, an exercise in missing the point. Um, and one of the things that came out of that for me was this realization that often when we're trying to talk about difficult, important things, part of what we need is a plurality of languages so that we don't forget the limits of the language that we're using. So to circle around between different ways of talking about something rather than get too attached to one particular vocabulary. Yeah. So one phrase that we used in the manifesto that Paul and I wrote that was the beginning of Dark Mountain was right at the end we said the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop mm -hmm. and we talked about together looking for the hope beyond hope the paths that lead into the unknown worlds that lie ahead. For years I did quite often return to that trying to play with this idea that the end of the world as we know it isn't something, you know, the world as we know it and the world are not the same thing. Right. And in, in a conversation quite early on in Dark Mountain with David Abram, um, I found myself sort of articulating this as the end of the world as we know it is also the end of a way of knowing the world. Oh, that's great. And then later I realized that you can't quite escape the sort of run for the hills connotations of the end of the world as you know it, however much you try and play with it. And that maybe another language is to talk about what it means to be living in a time of endings. Yeah. Quieter way of naming this. Yeah, yeah, that's um, great. Those are some of the words that I've found myself circling around with over the years. Yeah, thank you. I, I've used your phrase, the end of the, your, yours and Paul's, mm -hmm. the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop, you know, 200 times in my own presentations because I just find, I found the Dark Mountain Manifesto and uh, much of your writings independently and together since then to be so helpful. And really, I see you 
and Paul as, and, and others within the Dark Mountain Project, really as older brothers and sisters, whether you're younger, I'm 60, so, you know, uh, not older in biological terms necessarily, but really as people who have been forging this trail a lot longer than I have and have had huge contributions to make. So thank you. Oh, thank you. So Dougal, you um, just mentioned endings and uh, I'm, I wished I could have walked with you on the journey that you took after you left Dark Mountain. Um, I just, I, I have a feeling that just from what I've read that you've learned some things about endings. So I'm, I just want to open up that territory because mm. this has been a, a huge transition for you. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm just wondering what you'd like to share about doing endings well. Oh, lovely question. I think that we come out of a, a culture, those of us who've grown up in you know, the kind of place I grew up, probably the kinds of places that you guys grew up, where um, even the idea that it's possible to do endings well is not necessarily something that is to hand, certainly not something that is celebrated within that culture. It's funny because one of the things that I've done with my life is to sort of start projects and um, you know, bring together conversations that spark into and then take some of the responsibility for carrying something on the journey that begins with, you know, I always say it's the journey from dreams to responsibilities. So I get invited to come and talk to groups of younger people who in one way or another are connected to words like being social entrepreneurs or whatever. And they have these stories about how I want to make a difference. I want to do something. I want to change something. I want to have impact. And one of the things that I try and give them is just to say, um, one of the great pleasures in my experience of having been a part of creating things is the point when something you've been a part of creating no longer needs you. And people don't often get up at sort of TED or the other celebratory events that our culture um, has and sort of celebrate the point at which you've become no longer needed to a thing you've created. But for me, it's actually one of the deepest pleasures in having been involved in bringing something to life. But this year, I mean, 10 years in which Dark Mountain has been an anchor to my life, you know, part of what that was, was a journey beyond being the guy who's good at being around in the beginnings of things, to actually coming to the point where I had to do some growing up and take responsibility for Dark Mountain at the points where it was getting past those early beginnings and when you know, no one was going to miraculously turn up and help bring it through to the next stage. Part of what I realized my role was working with the others who were going to be involved in taking it forward was actually just among all of the practical stuff we needed to do together, making time for the kind of sharing of the oral culture of the project, the stories that might never get written down, but that it's good that we tell each other backwards and forwards a bit during the point where I was still you know, part of their gatherings so that someone in that gang will remember it and tell it with their own turn on it when I'm no longer 
um, needing to be there. And one of those stories for me that felt really important was to say, uh, if you happen to be the people who are around when it's time to end this thing, don't feel like that's a mistake. Don't feel like that's a failure because that would be a misunderstanding of what this thing has been. And I feel like one of the invitations that's coming to us out of the much larger and you know, more tragic endings that are part of what it means to be alive at this moment in a world like this is to uh, rediscover, yeah, as you said, the sort of the art of ending things well, which includes noticing that it takes endings for there to be room for other things to begin. And I've been working quite a bit with an amazing woman, Vanessa Andriotti, who is professor of race, inequalities and global change at UBC in Canada. And she comes from Brazil. She's coming out of an indigenous context and working across boundaries with activists and scholars and indigenous scholars and indigenous communities and non-indigenous communities and thinkers and folks like me who uh, cross paths with her and she talks a lot about and the collective that she's part of which is called the decolonial futures collective they talk a lot about hospicing modernity Ooh, I like also, that. yeah it's it's good isn't it it's yeah. like that part of what it means and actually you know, now that postmodernism has gone out of fashion in the academy, apparently, maybe we can reclaim with a bit more seriousness the clues that are there in the strange language of living in some sense after or at the end of modernity. Um, so hospicing modernity and at the same time um, midwifing or being present at the birth of, you know, unforeseeable things that include possibilities for wiser ways of being but with no guarantee that that's how it's going to be and that you know in the best case scenarios are you know the possibility is to make some new mistakes instead of repeating old ones and i really like those conversations that um are coming out of decolonial futures collective partly because I worry sometimes that I hear people in some of the conversations around a thing like Dark Mountain putting a lot of weight on the hospicing and almost not noticing or making room for uh, the coexistence of that with a uh, the the sense that things come after and in a sense you know, this is what I was reaching for when Paul and I wrote that line about the end of the world as we know it not being the end of the world full stop it's how do I walk this strange thin line between you know a desperate optimism that is really wishful thinking on the one side or a simple despair that is kind of narcissistic because it sees in the ending of a particular way of life and the loss of some things that you know some of which we really should mourn and some of which we really should struggle to try and take what we can of them with us but it sees in that the end of everything kind of can't imagine 
a life worth living beyond the end of the promises of modernity. And to me, that's actually part of the, the challenge now. And I can see, particularly in the last year, with the emergence of this wave of kind of quite large scale public consciousness with the roles being played by people like Greta Thunberg, Jem Vandal, um, Gail and Roger from Extinction Rebellion and others, many others, that there is something that has a kind of resonance with the work that we've been doing more quietly in our odd little corners with Dark Mountain. But I also have a sense that there are people who are walking this path you know, way ahead of me and Paul. And many, many of those people were you know, on the hard end of modernization processes in parts of the world where climate change is already playing out as an everyday reality far ahead of where it is for most of us. And so to me, it's people like Gustavo Esteva and um, the kind of networks that he was part of in Mexico from the 70s and 80s onwards. That's where I've turned over the years for the thinking of people who spent longer trying to reckon with what it means to live through an age of endings than I have. So, yeah, those have been where I've picked up a lot of the paths that I've tried to follow. Yeah. I like the place from which this conversation is coming um and i i'm just thinking about um your school called home and the yeah. qualities of conversations uh around your dinner table and i aspire to hosting that kind of space in my life and in my home too and i would love nothing more than to have this conversation carry those qualities um, just for this short little moment of time that we have with you and that people have to listen in. Mm. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that you would want to say about how we're having the conversation. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of, there is a zone, a space, a place that we're uh, inhabiting together despite the, uh, distance of these technologies despite the difference between what it's like to be having this conversation over screens and cameras compared to what it would be like if we were sat together at the same time of day in the same place around a table together but I'm always you know I find something miraculous in how how far we manage to transcend the limitations of the tools and I think that there's a need for a quality of gentleness because the nature of what brings us to a conversation like this is full of fear and full of urgency and um, you know, difficulty and kind of brokenness and jagged edges and all of those things are, um, are real. What I'm experiencing in this little conversation now and what I aspire to whenever we bring people together around our table here and in the work that we're doing to open that into a school, which is something strangely playful and convivial and, you know, post-doom, not least in the sense that it doesn't need to be freighted with doom. Yes. Nice. <sighs> yeah. 
Beautiful. And well. and just on that same thing, I I noticed that you're hosting some an art workshop or encouraging people to go. I'm just wondering what the place of creativity and art plays in this way, um, a new way of being with one another in these times. Going back into the Dark Mountain yeah. story, because this feels pretty central to my journey with Dark Mountain, part of what I felt and part of what we were reaching for when we wrote the manifesto was that there was a deeper role for the things that sometimes go under the name of art within how we come to terms with, um, how we encounter, how we come to know the, the, the nature of the mess that we're in. And at a certain point, I actually got this strange email out of the blue from a guy who had um, just been appointed as the um, the artistic director of Riksteatern, Sweden's National Theatre. And he had several years earlier read the Dark Mountain Manifesto and been strongly affected by it. And just when he was offered this job, he happened to find out from somebody that I was now living in Sweden. And uh, so he invited me in for a conversation. And after a couple of conversations, he rather rashly said, well, just come and work with me and created a a job um, as leader of artistic development there. And so for a couple of years, I got to spend part of my time working with him and his colleagues and bringing together artists from around Sweden and elsewhere around the question of the role of art under the shadow of climate change. And my starting point for that work was to say, I think the first thing we have to do is to gently refuse the invitation that usually comes to us when we call ourselves artists in relation to a thing like climate change, which is an invitation to help deliver the message. Right. To put art in service of the science, the facts, um, the policy makers, the campaigners. And we have to say, oh, that's not quite what art is good for. Okay. Um, art isn't as trustworthy and reliable as that because actually uh, in a sense I think that the duty that goes with the role of artist is a duty to whatever is missing within the socially agreed truth at a moment in time. Mm -hmm. It's part of if you read somebody like John Berger who's another of the people who led me into so much of this thinking and this work uh, the quality of attention in Berger's writing which comes from having been a, a painter first before he was a writer. And you know, that quality of attention is radical and subversive because it involves noticing the things that you don't see if you're looking at the world through the categories that you have been given. And in noticing them and in you know, testifying to that which is slipping the net of the frames and categories and concepts which we have grown up with, then you dislodge things a little. And you know, that's part of what's called for you know, in the strangeness of this moment, because you know, for, from a lot of points of view, there are no moves left on the board. Right, yes. thank you, beautiful. Um, <laughs> and when, when there are no moves left on the board, 
the best thing you can do is to remember that this was always partly a game with a set of rules that were humanly created. And you know, there's a lovely book by Lewis Hyde called Trickster Makes This World, where he brings together on the one hand, you know, the kind of patterns that emerge from different cultures of the trickster as a kind of figure within mythology, with the idea that within modernity, the kind of the character who has been in touch with the trickster has been the artist character. The artist role has been in some way tangled up with this you know, mythic archetypal role of the trickster. And what I got from reading Hyde's book was the thought that trickster tends to be this kind of low status character within the pantheon of a culture. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like the high gods who represent the different aspects of order. Under ordinary circumstances, Trickster is somewhere between a source of entertainment and a nuisance. He's a bit of a pain in the butt, um, but he's kind of fun to have around at parties. You, you can always tell a good story or play a good tune. But then in the moment when the existing order is beyond saving, the high forces within the culture have no moves left because they are the embodiments of the different aspects of the order. And very often you see, and Hyde talks about this in the role that the Loki figure plays within the kind of pivot that's going on in the Icelandic and Nordic mythology at the point where it's getting written down when it's already in a transition to a Christian culture. Um, the, 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 the trickster figure, because of their low status, because they kind of know how to treat things as a joke, can find the joke within the tragedy, can find the sort of the way to fall down and laugh at yourself rather than fall down and stand up and look very sternly at the, uh, the bit of pavement that you just tripped over um, and can, can help us move through to whatever it is that can be created under the circumstances we find ourselves in as we live through whatever kind of fall it is we're living through. Yeah. So for me, that's one of the stories about where, you know, why it's so fertile to hang out with artists and to bring them into the spaces that we bring together to talk about these things. Yeah, that's great. Well, Dougal, I want to invite you to, the, the heart of this particular podcast series has really been to invite thought leaders, activists, writers, to share their, their own personal journey. How did you wake up to our global predicament? What were the, some of the mentors or significant influences in helping you to do that? That's what a lot of people find really helpful is when they realize, oh, they're not alone. They're, these people who they admire or have read or know about, um, these leaders, uh, have all similar experience and stories. And so anything you'd like to share about that? Hmm. Now, I mean, I was born in the late 70s, so uh, by the time I was in my teens, climate change and a sense of environmental crisis was already, you know, it was kind of going through one of the kind of peaks of awareness of it, if you like, between sort of the late 80s and the early 90s. And I remember reading this book by Alan Garner, um, who's one of my heroes, one of the people who's really shaped my, my thinking. And he's a novelist. He's known as a children's novelist. But there's this book of his essays. And I was reading it when I was 18 or 19. And 
I had this experience of being given names for precious things that had been lost without that being in some romantic story of there having been a golden age back there because there never was a golden age and you know as I later got to know Alan he's very much you know would sort of make sure that he was holding my um sort of head to the realities of how, how the past was and he was born in the 1930s so you know he grew up in a time where little kids at school who would go home sick and never come back because there weren't any antibiotics um and that was just an ordinary part of childhood that you know one or two of your friends would die along the way um and so it's quite sobering to hang out with somebody who's still around and who grew up with that and it certainly you know it puts a certain pressure on you to explain what you mean when you're critiquing progress in the way that paul and i were doing in the in the manifesto but nonetheless reading his um essays gave me a sense of you know what it was that was sort of hollowed out about um life within uh sort of modern industrial societies and um that you know, it wasn't a mistake to feel this and that you could actually name this sense of loss and bring it into view now not long afterwards i remember you know in sort of late 1999 when the whole thing about the millennium bug was around um i remember reading one or two articles that were kind of um about a sort of apocalypse scenario with uh, planes falling out of the sky and civilization crashing and so on and going on this little journey in my head of going well you know, i can't totally judge whether these articles are nonsense or whether there's something in it i can't know but more than that what i can know is that sooner or later it all does end yeah. and that i have to actually i have to live in the face of that knowledge that's part of you know i have to piece together uh, whatever meaning i can find on my journey through life with the knowledge of endings on every scale from knowledge of my own mortality and that of everybody i love to the larger scale of endings um knowing that that's all built into the story and that it doesn't cancel anything out you know that i was studying english literature so i was reading hamlet and there's a bit really early on in hamlet where uh, they're trying to sort of cheer him up at the banquet uh, after his mother has rather quickly remarried uh, his uncle and uh, they're sort of saying to him look no get some perspective and he's saying to them no you get some perspective um, like you know there's kind of um, you zoom out far enough and the well it's in fight club isn't it the survival the, the chances of survival for everything from zero on a long enough timeline so that was all kind of there in the piecing together of um, uh, trying to be a human for me from quite early on the threshold of adulthood and then I remember hitting the kind of panic about climate change having known about it you know and having had waves of feeling it then really slamming into it around 2005 um, which I guess you could say was sort of if you look at the larger scale of public awareness if there was one cycle between sort of late 80s and early 90s and then another cycle was getting underway around 2005 and tailed off around <laughs> 2010 and now we're in another cycle of that 
Um, and there's lots more, it's more complicated than that, but there is a, there is a kind of wave pattern there. So I guess I was riding that wave around 2005 and I remember going through firstly the kind of obsessive compulsive behaviours that I think a lot of us go through when we hit that. I was working in BBC newsrooms, I'd be on a late shift in a local newsroom, I'd stay and be the last person in there before locking up and I'd go around climbing over everybody's desks to turn off all of these monitors above all of the desks. <laughs> 40 desks around the newsroom <laughs> because you know, you're sort of switching off light bulbs as if it's going to save the planet because that's where you're at because that's like yeah. that's a coping strategy yeah. and you know if you're honest with yourself then somewhere a few months down the line maybe quicker if you're smarter than me you hit the point of going oh I maybe it's not going to be enough and you have to enter into another relationship with this knowledge than one which is based on bargaining with the universe. Because otherwise you just sort of slam the door and run off back in the other direction. Um, and that, yeah, that was kind of the beginning for me, that sort of second threshold, the one of not just you know, hitting it as a set of facts that make you panic, that make you do things really quickly, but then it hitting you here mm -hmm. and having to sit with and face that knowledge that, yeah, you know, it might not be, none of what we're doing might be enough. And I think that, you know, what's kind of new in what's happened over the last year or so is that we have on a large scale culturally whole sections of the culture engaging in a shared way with that level, as opposed to this level of knowing and reacting to um, a thing like climate change. Yeah. I think that there's a danger as well that's present within that. You have to go from knowledge that you can hold and possess as facts to an experience of knowing that is calling you into question and changing you. And you can think that you've gone there, but you're still actually kind of just clinging on to yeah. one thing, which is the shadow of knowledge. It's a kind of dark certainty. And mm. so when I listen to people who are attached to particular predictions, particular scenarios, um, particular stories, prophecies almost at times about how it's all going to play out, what I think I'm picking up is that there's a kind of weird way in which that ultra-pessimistic certainty is the last layer of defense before you really let it totally sit in your heart and you know, be vulnerable to the experience of the experience of knowing, which is always also the experience of mystery, because the experience of knowing is unfinished unfinishable it's a participation in something that is beyond your grasp and that's very different to the type of knowledge that we like to act as if we can have in the culture that we've come out of um and you know that's one of the one of the places i go with that thing about the type of not the, the you know because if i talk about the knowledge as facts the thing that you can hold at arm's length then we're talking about the kind of knowledge which science 
offers. And so it's quite important to say, you know, not to kind of moralize the holding at arm's length, um, treating the world as if it can be held at arm's length, production of facts, but to ask under what circumstances is it helpful to act as if we can have knowledge as something we possess? Under what circumstances is it helpful to act as if the world can be held at arm's length? And then, you know, the answer can be that it can be very helpful in its moment within a rhythm that has a return to it. A rhythm of going out there and then returning, holding at distance and then returning. And where it goes astray is when the kind of detached phase within that um, rhythm is elevated and turned into the be all and end all. Um, yeah, beautifully said. Yeah, fabulous. Wow. I I love um, just your simple statement that our way of living must be surrendered. To surrender is to give up, to be humbled, perhaps humiliated, but with a chance, not a guarantee that we we may live to tell the tale. <laughs> I loved those words that you penned. I wrote that piece for Extinction Rebellion because they were bringing together a book with a lot of different voices in it and they asked me to contribute something. I felt almost as if I'd written, as if I was gesturing towards a curriculum that I was in no way qualified to then teach because, um, you know, arriving at that that idea of surrender and part of what i'm doing there is to it, it's a provocation that's aimed in a particular direction because the hour there has to be put in um quotation marks it's not everybody equally um but uh, most of us involved in many of the conversations that i get drawn into are to a greater or lesser extent implicated within what is to be surrendered uh, and I went with Jem Bendel and Alison Green to the European Commission and talked at this strange event there where um, I talked a bit more about this. Um, and it was really offering surrender in place of sustainability, saying whatever it has meant along the way, sustainability has this tendency. And once it was coupled into sustainable development from the late 80s, this became inevitable to mean sustaining our current way of living. You know, at a stretch, the way of living of one in seven of the people around today um, at all costs, as if that were either desirable or possible. And so going to places like the European Commission or standing up in, in front of the kind of audiences I mostly end up talking to in Europe and saying, you know, no, what's at stake is not sustaining our way of living, it's surrendering that. But then this idea that surrender kind of opens into all of these different resonances. So on the one hand, military history and strategy and peacemaking and the different parallel things that need to be going on in order to bring a negotiation of surrender, in order to bring an end to a conflict, in order to bring about a process of peacemaking. On the other hand, surrender is a concept that's there 
in the experience and vocabulary of people working with addiction. It's there in many different spiritual traditions. It's there very clearly in Islam with the, literally the, the meaning of the word, the, the understanding of a submission or surrender at the center of that tradition. But it's there, you, know, you find it in different ways within every spiritual tradition that I've had um, the chance to hang out around. Um, and so uh, if, if there's merit in it as a language for talking about this, then sooner or later, um, some kind of conversation involving people who can bring depth of experience and authority from those different places feels like it would be a very worthwhile thing mm. to happen. Uh, and, you know, I would just kind of be there and, and sit at the feet of everybody and uh, listen to the stories and experiences and the pain and difficulty and struggle that they that would come out of bringing that conversation yeah any anything that you would share that uh, of who have been you've already mentioned a number of them throughout the course of this conversation but any other mentors or things or individuals or books that have been particularly soul nourishing or or uh heartfully helpful to you hmm well, I suppose the the other one that comes immediately to mind is Alistair Macintosh's Soil and Soul, hmm. which was uh, one of a handful of books that I discovered as I realized that I wasn't going to have the career that I thought I was meant to have. And in that sort of very strange um, kind of moment of things falling away that I had in my mid-twenties, there were a series of books that kind of just throw themselves off bookshelves in strange circumstances at you. And one of them was this book, Soil and Soul by Alistair Macintosh. And, you know, the, the books that formed me at that age in my life were, oh, they were written by men. Um, now, a lot of the kind of conversations and the work that's been really formative for me in recent years has been reading things and in dialogue with women and with people whose you know, backgrounds and life stories have been very different to mine. But at that point, when I was you know, 24, 25, trying to figure out what the hell to do with a life, actually part of what saved me was finding sort of three men of my grandfather's generation whose books read like ret letters from the older, wiser friend I badly needed. And that was John Berger and Alan Garner, whose work I had already had and had kind of carried like a talisman, and Ivan Illich. And then um, Alistair was important in a different way because he was kind of about my father's uh, sort of generation. And I read this book, which was this account of his involvement in the land reform movement in Scotland and the struggle to stop this super quarry on the Isle of Harris, but it was about so many other things as well. And what I experienced from it was here was somebody who was already you know, in the middle years of life, who uh, was clearly an activist, who was motivated by something that went deeper and was more resilient than anger. And a lot of the activists my own age, who I had spent time around and worked with, quite driven by anger because you can you know anger can get you out of bed in the morning and you can do a lot with it when you're 25 but you do not meet many people who reach 40 and are full of life and anger is the thing that is driving them and so Alistair um, you know, kind of embodied for me somebody who, who was 25 30 years older than me and hadn't 
um, burnt out or sold out and whose activism had actually achieved real things in the world. And I read that book and when I got to the end of it, it's the only time I've ever immediately sat down and written to the author. And slowly over the years afterwards, we became friends and he was someone who'd been very important to Dark Mountain. And um, so that's you know, Alistair's work. And I know he's actually working at the moment on a book on climate and, um, if I say psychology, it's almost not quite the right word because Alistair tends to work at the sort of cultural level rather than the individual level. Mm -hmm. So what is the kind of cultural psychological journey that we're being called to go on? And he's written about that already in Hell and High Water, which was a book that he wrote a few years ago. But he's working on a new um, book about those questions at the moment, which I'm really looking forward to. You have to try and find your bearings. And look, it happened to me quite early in adult life. And... Since then, I've realized that that's quite a common story for a lot of the people who I've you know, really been inspired by their work. But you, there are other stories where you meet that moment later at different stages along the journey. And actually, it's never just a one one off. You know, I can tell you various stories about those dark passages, some which are more personal, some of which are more connected to the big stories. But in those moments, if you're lucky, you encounter things, whether they're books or people, stories, cultural artifacts of one kind or another, that still make sense when almost nothing else around you makes sense and that you can steer by, you can orient by. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, that was, Soil and Soul was one of those for me at that moment in my life. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I realized the, the only major, or, person who played uh, that kind of a role for me in recent years, in addition to those I already mentioned, was Paul Traferka and his uh, Approaching the Limits blog. I found, many people have found very helpful. Well, I want to ask one more question uh, related to parenting, because uh, I just discovered a month ago that my youngest daughter is pregnant and due in May, and I also have an eight-year-old granddaughter. And, um, and there, I've already received word that there are a number of young families that are tapping into this post doom conversation series. So I want to invite you to share, you know, any tips or tools or anything from your heart about parenting because you have a young family yourself and, uh, and then invite Barbara, any question or questions that you want to ask before we close this? Mm, so, yeah, just before I came on uh, line to, talk to you I was putting my son to bed and he's he's four and he's uh oh full of life and energy and playfulness and stubbornness and he's not yet at the point where he's asking questions about the kind of things that lead us to a conversation like this but I can see that it won't be many years before he is you know, people sometimes come to me because they know the things I've written and they know that I am a father to ask me about the kind of decision making about becoming a parent in the Anthropocene. And I've, you know, I've had quite a few of those conversations with people and I try and sit with the, the thing that they're coming with and I understand where it's coming from. Um, again, actually, it was Anthony McCann who I had a conversation with about this where I said to him, Anthony, it's funny because I feel like the, the kind of decision that they are um, 
asking me to help them make is not quite a decision that I feel like Anna and I ever made. I, I feel like we became parents because you know, it was, it, it seemed um, right rather than because we weighed up the ethical choices and the pros and cons. And, and Anthony, who's, um, his, his wife is disabled and has a hereditary condition and they have two children together. And he said, well, you know, in a sense, this question about parenting in the Anthropocene is actually a little bit like the question about, you know, the ethics of bringing a disabled child into the world. Because what you're saying is, you know, is it ethical to bring a child into a disabled world? Because that is, what, that is where we are. Um, and uh, parents have been bringing children into the world under circumstances of great uncertainty forever. You know, there are things that are unique about the circumstances we find ourselves in, but that isn't one of them. What I experienced in becoming a parent was a very deep sense of uh, embodying and living very vividly something that was already there for me intellectually, which is the sense of how far astray this pressure to make meaning on the scale of an individual lifetime, to tell our story as if it is the story of a single lifetime is. You know, I'm glad to feel like a small link within a chain of generations and not to pretend that I know uh, where that chain leads um, and to just, you know, be taking what responsibility I can without pretending that I can take more than uh, is actually accorded to me in the moment of, you know, me being the one who is in the middle years of life and, you know, having parents who've got lots more years experience and uh, encountering the, um, you know, the hard realities of endings that come with age and having uh, a small person who's coming up behind who, you know, it'll be my turn, uh, under the best circumstances, it will be my turn to be um, old and him be strong um, in some decades from now. And you know, all I can say is that the world is bound to be a very different place um, and that there will be lots of loss and sadness within that. But uh, it seems reasonable to me to work with the background assumption that we may well still be around to uh to navigate that um and yeah those i mean there's so much more that lies ahead i feel very much still a beginner in the parenting department but uh it's um it's a precious thing yeah beautiful response thank you yeah well it feels to me like that was a great question to end on and i feel the atmosphere of ending and um just in our little cycle together and i want to honor that and just say what a privilege it is to walk this path with you dougald and to you know have such a genuine and open exchange in the closet with you <laughs> and, uh, i just I, you know i th this is the um, the nourishment and the fodder for um, 
creativity and meaning and gratitude. And uh, um, so that's all I just really want to say is that I, I'm, I walk with you. This has been a post-Doom conversation. For more audios and videos of post-Doom conversations and other resources along these lines, go to postdoom.com.